Hello and welcome to China Dispatches, a European Chamber podcast that shares on-the-ground insights from European business leaders and experts on doing business in China. I'm your host, Marianne Nagy. The European Chamber, in partnership with the Mercator Institute for China Studies, or MERIX, launched their joint report, China's Innovation Ecosystem, The Localization Dilemma, on the 21st of April. The report was the second of a planned three rounds of surveys and interviews among the Chamber's members on European companies' R&D activities in China. In today's episode of China Dispatches, we will look at some of the report's key findings, such as the different factors influencing European companies' innovation in China, as well as the wide range of R&D strategies they deploy in the face of the complexity of China's business environment. The full report is available for download on the European Chamber's website. It is my pleasure to welcome today's guests Chris van Hasse, Vice Chair of the European Chamber's R&D Working Group, and Jacob Gunter, Senior Analyst at Merix's Economic Research Team. Thank you very much for joining. The European Chamber and Merix launched their first joint report on R&D with the telling subtitle Right for Many, Not for All in 2022, providing an overall introduction of China's innovation ecosystem with its advantages and pitfalls. Jacob, you were the lead pen of both of our reports in R&D. Were there any findings in the second report that especially stood out to you in comparison with the conclusions of the first? Yeah, well, first we had a lot more respondents to the survey, which is a, a really key factor. The first one, we had to go go around and really push a lot of companies to, to take it. So the fact that we had so many more respondents this time made us a lot more confident in the findings from the survey itself. But then we also did, you know, a dozen interviews with companies for the first round and for the second round. And being able to revisit some of the same companies for the second time allowed us to go in much greater depth. You know, the first year we were sort of probing around, trying to feel what direction we should go in. Whereas this second time, we had a pretty clear sense of, you know, okay, these are the things that really matter. And the things that really matter are issues like to what extent they choose to localize. That's where this localization dilemma title comes from, is companies trying to decide, you know, China has an incredible R&D ecosystem that you could tap into, but it also comes with a lot of risks. So really getting to grips with how companies strategize about that and how they choose collaboration partners, for example, and what sort of trends emerged about companies that kind of go all in or companies that that are a bit more reserved about this and quite happy with this framework that we developed of localization. One of the interviews had this really almost a radical approach to the level of localization they were going into. And their philosophy was, we have to be here because the market is here for the kinds of products that they make, but also that they viewed it as essential for their global competition, that they in many ways need to compete with their Chinese counterparts in China so that they can better compete with them globally. Whereas on, on the far other end of that spectrum, we had companies that sort of said that the amount of competition is a little too much in China. And as a foreign company, we'll always be sort of second class citizens in the market in terms of how officials treat us, especially in some of the bigger cities. And so rather than trying to win in a rigged game, they want to invest their R&D resources in other markets and try to, to build market share in other markets before their Chinese competition goes there. So they're both still in it. They're both in the market. They both believe in the market. But in terms of that long-term sustainability, there were some of those concerns. And then lastly, I think some of the more interesting findings were about the impact of sort of geopolitical events. 
there was a really outsized impact from the survey, but also from the interviews about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how that has impacted the sustainability of business models and investment plans more generally, and how that has trickled down into a bit more skepticism about R&D investment, because R&D investment is sort of the longest term kind of investment that a company will make. It needs to have not a five-year turnaround kind of plan. It's a, a much longer proposition than that. So that sustainability really matters. And the way geopolitics is starting to threaten that sustainability. It's easy for me as a researcher to say it's interesting, but perhaps uh, Chris, as, a, as a, an actual business leader, has a, a bit different impression. Before we go into the geopolitical impact, Jacob mentioned these two extremes, the two extreme approaches to R&D in China that companies might take. And of course, there's nuances within those extremes. But basically, on the one extreme, we find the companies that are very happy to localize their R&D and technology, and on the other, those who are extremely cautious. So is that what you also see from the industry's perspective? You have to consider several factors. First of all, the market dynamics are very different from what we are used to in Europe from what we are used to in other parts of the world as well. So we need to understand how that works. We also need to know that those geopolitical factors do effectively play a significant role. And like Jacob also says, R&D is never a short-term strategy. I mean, it's not something that you can say, okay, I consider getting into R&D this year and next year we forget about it or we expand or, or whatever we want to do. It's really a, a long-term consideration and both the market dynamics as well as the political factors, as well as support from the government, as well as IP issues and enforcement of IP, all these factors play a decisive role in, in how you want to move forward and in what you want to do. So there are very different extremes, let's say, on the one side, you've got companies that say, yes, uh, we absolutely continue to invest and we definitely want to grow further into our R&D and the market. Usually these are companies where China is, is playing a very important market leader in general in those kinds of technologies. On other areas, it's much more different. I mean, where the costs of investment is going to be very high and where the competition is so extreme, basically, where you've got a lot of Chinese national and, and local companies that are giving a very sharp competition in, in the R&D field to the foreign companies, there it's much more difficult for different factors. It may be knowing the market, it may be also related to getting certain benefits easier because they have the political connections, they, they know the people, they know where to go when they need support, but also they get easier access to some government funded programs. And that's the, the two extremes. And then you've got everything in between as well. So companies have to, to make a very careful consideration about what they do with, with R&D and, and constantly. Even the ones that are there as the ones that are considering of moving into China um, on the R&D part. But I mean, like Jacob says as well, as well it's, it's a, a massive market. It's definitely a market that is the largest in, in the world, if not going to be. So do you have to be there? Yes. But what do you do? I mean, do you do R&D here locally or do you still do it from other parts in the world and then import your technology? That all has to be a consequence of all the considerations that, that you have to make. As you mentioned, there's many factors that determine the decisions that companies will make regarding their R&D strategies. But one of the factors that, of course, in the last couple of years really impacted these decisions were the COVID-19 control measures in China. 
that impacted business operations in the country and then R&D operations as well. So the survey that formed the basis of this report was conducted for the most part prior to the removal of COVID restrictions across China, but the follow-up interviews took place in January and February of this year, meaning that some changes in the sentiment related to the pandemic management restrictions ending are reflected in this report. Jacob, what kind of picture did the survey results and the subsequent interviews paint about the impact of the zero COVID policy on R&D activities in China? Yeah, so the survey data, and as you said, Marian, that that data sort of becomes a bit outdated because it was collected prior to the shift away from zero COVID. But we had 55% of uh, respondents viewed uh, China's zero COVID strategy as having a highly negative impact. And then 33% said it had a somewhat negative impact. 6% 6% neutral and 1% somewhat positive. And I was always curious about that 1% <laughs> where they got that impression from. The impact, of course, at the time was was massive. And we we also found this with the, the survey from the year before, that this, and how, how could it not be one of the most impactful things, particularly for R&D collaboration of, you know, you need people to be able to kind of come in and out of the country. And that means bringing foreign nationals into China to contribute to R&D projects. But it also means taking Chinese researchers and engineers and stuff and taking them to your global headquarters or to other operations. R&D is something that needs to be able to move across borders. And so the fact that that was shut down for a long time had a huge negative impact. That being said, with a lot of the interviews, you know, they really welcomed that change, that, that the flow of people might be able to start again. But there was a lot of recognition from many of the interviews that we had that it obviously will take quite some time to sort of get back to normal, not only from a regulatory perspective, but there might be some skepticism of people that have gone through the trauma of zero COVID for so long. Maybe there's some kind of almost psychological reluctance of going out and to the rest of the world for some people. Maybe for others, they're quite eager to get out and get back doing business abroad and doing research abroad. And that there was a similar kind of reputational concern that a lot of foreign researchers that maybe five years ago would have been very interested in coming to China to work in an R&D center for a European company will have read about the intensity of the lockdowns, for example, in Shanghai in 2022. And a lot of interviewees said that they were concerned that that reputational impact will take some time to sort of recover. So it was, again, very positive that things had started to change already at that time, but not completely unreserved positivity. There were some additional concerns. But I'm sure Chris, not only with the R&D working group, but also actually running things on the ground, having experienced uh, that last year, year and a half of zero COVID, because I had gotten out of China in mid-2021, so I wasn't there for the last big wave of of lockdowns and such. So maybe Chris can provide some on-the-ground perspective on that. Well, unlike you, I, I have stayed uh, in China all the time. So I really also experienced the uh, the rest and, and the changes and everything. And for sure, the reopening has been a good move. It's also come as sudden as the lockdowns were there. But we are now in the situation of, okay, uh, everything's opened up again. And the economy is also catching up again. But it's like you say, Jacob, I mean, it's basically not going as fast as everyone thought it, it would be. There is indeed some skepticism and there is indeed some careful considerations about how people move. There are, of course, also those people that are very willing to come back to China that were actually waiting for that reopening to happen. We cannot forget also that the step of reopening is maybe one part. The price of a flight ticket, for instance, right after the reopening was still very high. 
um, so that also doesn't help to get this travel back. Also, the pre-testing before you actually get into the country, I think it's lifted now for everyone. So that has also helped to facilitate more the moving back of foreign talent into China. But it's like you say, there are other considerations as well. People who are moving into China also have families to bring along. And this was also one of the considerations from the respondents was many of, of the, the international teachers have left the country too. And that leaves questions regarding the quality of education for the children of the foreign talents and also the hospitals, of course. You see that same flow out of people and support has gone as well. So that all has to re-establish probably a bit more before we can really see this regaining of the inflow of foreign talents back in, into China. Of course, COVID was a big factor last year, but Jacob mentioned earlier that another important factor determining R&D activities and localization strategies was uh, the geopolitical factors. And one of the biggest uh, geopolitical factor that was highlighted in the report was Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which prompted companies to do a lot of risk assessments about their localization and R&D strategies. Jacob, in what ways can such a seemingly distant geopolitical issue influence companies planning for their R&D activities in China? The biggest impact is the general destabilization of possible expectations of what will happen in the world. The increase in unpredictability that such a major event, even though it's on the other side of the world from China, can have on general predictability. Because the unfortunate reality is that conflicts like this, there's always a chance of things escalating or of more countries getting involved. And that can really quickly spiral out of control. So from a predictability perspective, it's a huge risk. And I've been speaking with a lot of European corporates at their headquarters here in Europe over the last year or so, and this topic always comes up. I'm on the economic research team, and I can't go into a meeting with a policymaker or with a corporate you know, C-suite people or boards of directors and such. I can't talk with people about just straight economics and business. We also have to discuss geopolitics because we live in a geopolitical time. And as far as the concerns and the impacts go vis-a-vis -vis China, Obviously, at first, there's a lot of concern of to what degree is China continuing to do business with Russia? Is there a possibility that they will violate some of the sanctions regimes that the US and Europe and Japan and others have put in place? And how might that then escalate? Because if you end up in a situation where some Chinese companies have violated those sanctions, then there's a retaliation from those who have put the sanctions in place. And then Maybe Beijing feels obligated to respond in kind and, again, risk of escalation. But frankly, the biggest thing that we, we heard from some people in the interviews, and then again, I can echo my own experience talking with people in, in headquarters here in Europe, is they all ask Russia and Ukraine today, what if there's a fight in the Taiwan Straits? And that really escalated. A lot of interviewees mentioned House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and Ironically, we got in the interviews a lot of people that were concerned about, well, what if the new U.S. House Speaker McCarthy has a meeting with, um, with Taiwanese officials? And lo and behold, a few months later, President Tsai Ing-wen was transiting through the United States and met with Speaker McCarthy. And all of these things have an impact because companies are required to track these sorts of risks. And frankly, I've been meeting with some people in the financial sector, uh, bankers and insurers and such. And... There's a lot of open conversation now here in Europe about how do they factor in those kinds of risks when they're issuing, you know, financing contracts or insurance contracts. 
with companies invested in China or or invested in Taiwan for that matter. So, yeah, it sounds like something you know a war on the other side of the planet. How does that impact R and D strategies? And again, it impacts it massively because that sustainability and predictability that everything would sort of just stay calm. You need that for that long term investment. So the impact is there, but Chris, do you also see some companies taking concrete steps at the moment? It's something that is very difficult to mitigate. We are not politicians as companies, of course. So we try to understand the situation and try to make sure that whatever could possibly happen, we are prepared to yeah, react to the situation as it presents itself at a particular moment. And that means risk analysis and also means trying to figure out what we need to do in, in case of certain situations when they occur. But it's like Jacob says, I mean, R&D investment is a very long-term strategy. It's not something that you do for two, three years. It's 10, 15, 20, 30 years, if not longer. So we really need that stable environment and that conflict-free world as much as possible. And that goes from the current conflict in Ukraine, as well as any trade conflicts that are there or that may arise in the future or any other types of conflicts that still may come and let's hope not. But it's a constant evaluation of how does the geopolitical environment actually influence our business doing here locally in China. And it has done that in many different ways, for sure. We just try to make sure that from what we see on the ground and from what we feel, that we can move forward in our business and continue to be successful despite all those difficulties and making sure that also our, our novelty, our innovation and our way of doing things in, in China gets protected as well, that we make sure that we grow as a business in China, for China and also for Asia and for the world. It basically requires all the leaders around the world to keep their cool a little bit and to keep on talking with each other other than, than other things. But yeah, like I said, we are not the politicians. So we discussed a bit the negative aspects or the negative factors that impact these R&D strategies. But of course, the report also highlighted some of the positive factors that uh, incentivize companies to do R&D in China. For instance, uh, among these, we found that government support can be a positive factor as long as companies can actually access such support. Chris, can you tell us a bit about the different R&D-related support schemes, such as the high and new technology enterprise status, and what benefits do they entail? There are a lot of different schemes in, in place that can be used and can be utilized. The high technology enterprise status is, of course, uh, one of them. And there, the immediate benefit is, of course, quite clear. I mean, it's a tax benefit where basically the corporate tax gets reduced from 25 to 15%. But you've got also other advantages that are included in, in that program. Um, the same also with the, uh, the Technical Advanced Service Enterprise or TASC status, which brings much of the, the same benefits as the DHNTE. Uh, and then there are, of course, also different types of local programs. For instance, the, the city of Shanghai also has programs where they recognize foreign invested R&D centers locally with different benefits, including tax benefits but including housing support as well for employees, um, including other types of, of benefits that are clearly included in, in the guideline. 
So there is quite a, a good and, and strong support basis for getting foreign talent here, but also for supporting actual R&D work in China locally with different programs, be it at the, at the national level as well as at the, uh, the local uh, city level. The subsidies can have a really positive effect, but also the report highlighted that it's not necessarily true that all companies have equal access to them. To quote the actual data from the report, almost a quarter of survey respondents flagged limited or non-existent government support as a factor undermining the allure of China's innovation ecosystem to them. So Jacob, can you tell us a bit more about what the data suggests about European companies' access to these uh, government support and how that impacts their decision-making? The data speaks for itself in in terms of the companies that noted that insufficient support. But one thing that's quite interesting, and maybe not a disparity between the survey results and the interviews, but rather just the details that emerge in conversations, is that when you're taking a survey, you're just answering individual questions, kind of in a binary that yes or no, this applies to my company. Whereas when we were speaking with a lot of these companies, and we had asked them about, are you able to access enough support, government supports? The ones who did say that they either couldn't access enough or that they had unequal access would also go on to say, but that doesn't really have a huge impact on our actual R&D strategy making. It's wonderful to have that support when it's possible. It can also be very frustrating if you don't have equal access to that support. But fundamentally, the companies that are really investing heavily into R&D in China are doing it more out of the market forces that exist in China rather than a government subsidy here or a special industry zone there. To the degree that it actually impacts their decision, it's relatively limited. From the interviews, it tended to be less about do we or do we not invest, but rather where do we invest in an R&D center? Do we do it in Shanghai or do we do it in a smaller city where maybe it's easier to access some of that support? And then otherwise, though, it's, it's those market forces that are really the big kind of push factor to get companies in. And we asked companies which of the following factors positively impacts your your company's R&D and innovation in China. And 61% said it was the size of the market. 46.6% said it was strong local demand for our innovative goods and products. It's not the 1990s anymore. People want really cutting edge innovative products. There's high expectations and high demands and you need to really invest in R&D to really suit the local tastes of what Chinese consumers and customers are looking for. And the third highest of these positive things was the fast pace of commercial application of R&D results. And this came up in every single interview that we had. The speed with which things go from, okay, so we have some findings from basic research, we've collaborated with a university or some sort of R&D center to start finding ways to go into the development stage of that basic research that's been done by that entity. And rather than it taking years, it can sometimes just take months to actually get to commercialization. I think it was in last year's round of surveys and interviews that we had one company that was talking about the specific need that they needed to fulfill. I think it was a digital twin application that would then further facilitate their R&D operations and kind of digitalize it. And they said that they were able to find a collaboration partner that was able to get this set up so that, and then they could commercialize it. It took six weeks and it cost half a million RMB. And this interviewee, they joked of, oh, if we had searched for the exact same kind of partnership collaboration in Europe, it would have taken six months and it would have cost half a million euro. So that speed of commercialization is hugely important. And again, this comes back to this localization dilemma question of if the speed of not just the R&D, but also its commercialization is so fast in China, then if you're not present in the market, 
maybe over time you're going to start falling behind. You may have, you know, some of the most cutting edge scientists and researchers working for you back in Europe or in North America or Japan or somewhere else. But it's not just a game of who has the best R&D capacity. It's also a game of who can commercialize it because these are businesses. <laughs> it's, it's not just a research university. Talking about commercialization, Chris, can you talk a bit about, again, from the industry's perspective of how much of these R&D results can you also commercialize in other markets? Are these solely for the Chinese market or do companies also export their innovation results to other markets? It's actually a very interesting question. And it, it basically depends on, on how far you stand with actual R&D in China. If you're just starting up, then of course the answer will be no, definitely not. Um, but for the companies that have heavily invested in R&D in China in the recent decades and also in the last couple of years, who have built this solid knowledge base and also built this innovative base here in China, they definitely have the capability and reaching the stage of, okay, we are creating some new technologies that are going to be or are being exported outside of China. If you look at some parts of the industry today that are changing very rapidly, like electric vehicles, there definitely you see the players from China moving outside, some moving to Europe, some are moving into the US. And that also means that whole value chain goes along with it. So all suppliers, first tier, second tier suppliers, and so on, they also see basically their technologies being exported out of China into Europe locally and, and so on and so on. So in conclusion, I mean, basically, when we look at um, exporting R&D results, that happens for those companies that are already here in China for quite a long time, that have invested for quite some time. For the ones that are just starting, of course, that it's not the case. But we see these companies that have actual presence that are investing really in the research part, in the basic research part, and, and not in the practical development and further customization to the market. But the ones developing or really investing in, in deep research, there we, we see the fruits of technologies being exported out of China, solutions being provided together with primary industry branches, so like the electric vehicles, like wind power and so on and so on. All those first tier, second tier suppliers also have done investments in product research, also have their solutions to those applications. So for those companies that are exporting in the primary industries outside of China, you also see that, that all the other parts of the value chain really start to export as well outside of China to Europe, to the US and to other parts in the world. Still on the same topic, Jacob, do you see any discrepancies across sectors when it comes to exporting R&D results out of China? There weren't any companies, at least not that I recall, that said explicitly that they wouldn't take their R&D results out of China because of like regulatory issues that even if they wanted to, that they chose not to. I don't recall any companies that, that did that, but something that did come up in a few of our conversations was concern about some of the new tools that are being put together in the regulatory system of export restrictions, and that, that could include, you know, restrictions on taking IP abroad. So it's less of a, this is happening fear, it's more of a concern of, this could be happening in the future, and that specifically, this would be a means of retaliation in Beijing for further restrictions on China's access to certain technologies from the United States, from Europe, from Japan, and such. So the fear of further escalation of the trade war, or the technology war rather, coming from Beijing as well as coming from Washington and other capitals. I think that's where there was some concern and some discrepancy. 
And part of that, to get very specific, is there's a, a kind of draft regulation going around at the moment, it may have already gone out, that specifically looks at restricting the flow of IP and of machinery and, and production equipment uh, related to photovoltaics, so solar panels, basically. That's been pretty widely interpreted as a signal that Beijing might be looking at trying this as kind of a test case, that China has a really dominant position in that technology and in that production, and that there might be a willingness to weaponize this as a means of retaliation from further restrictions from other places. And again, it just kind of boils back down to this unpredictability that, you know, 10 years ago, companies didn't have to worry about whether the U.S. was going to restrict the flow of semiconductors and chips to China, and they didn't have to think about, you know, how might China retaliate and how might that impact our investments in China and, you know, our IP that is developed in China. So it's on people's radars, to be sure. Could you mention some aspects of the 2023 report that could prove especially helpful for those companies that are currently at the stage of considering doing R&D in China? When we look at doing R&D in China, I think the survey also gives a good overview of how the sentiment is in, in general. And of course, there are very positive things about doing research and development work in, in China. There are also some areas where there is still improvement necessary or where there, there is still a desire to get some modification. And some of the key recommendations from the research and development working group in that report were basically invest more in, in research and development of green and sustainable technology to accelerate along the path towards carbon neutrality and realize also China's overall environmental goals. The second one was about encourage also the foreign invested enterprises to contribute to R&D in China by optimizing the financial incentives framework and by improving also the international R&D corporations. Then the third point was about create an ecosystem that supports mobility of international talent to and from China. It is important for both China as well as the world globally to make sure that if we want to promote innovation, if we want to promote continuous improvement of our society and so on, we need to make sure that also the foreign talents can exchange quite easily, that also Chinese nationals can move quite easily back and forth to educate themselves, to educate each other, and also to come up with better solutions for some of the practical questions in, in our society. The fourth part was about also creating an ecosystem that supports multinational enterprises, digital innovation in China. There is new legislation coming out related to how China wishes to protect its data and how that data exchange can go forward and how that needs to move forward. And of course, internationally, the governments are trying to make sure that they protect their own strategic intelligence. But for companies, it is quite important to make sure that the IP-related data to our innovations that, that we do in, in China or elsewhere in the world, that this global network that we have to maximize basically our optimization of data and our invention of new things, that can move within a certain framework that protects it, but that also allows it within the assets of the industry. And then the last recommendation was also to strengthen basically protection of R&D, particularly when it comes to IP-related aspects to, to develop world-class innovation environment. IP protection doesn't only go about registering patents, but it's also about correct enforcement and correct litigation. There is quite a difference still between 
tier one cities, litigation cases, conclusions, and for instance, the other tier cities uh, conclusions, where of course the experience of the legal system in the tier one cities, or in some cases appears to be higher than those in the more remote uh, locations. Yeah, so there are still many areas where companies should watch out for developments before they make their decisions about R&D and R&D strategies. And as mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, our most recent joint report was the second of a planned three reports on a European companies' role in China's innovation ecosystem. Jacob, when is the next round of surveys planned to start and when should the audience expect to read the final products? We will probably have the survey coming out near the end of this year, probably October, November, December, probably more November, December. <laughs> uh, it'll depend on scheduling, of course. And then we'll do another month or two of, of interviews after that. And then it takes a few more months to put it together So, and, and actually publish the thing. So I'd say probably April, May next year will, will be the, the final report. But we'll see. A lot of stuff can change and disrupt things, unfortunately. We, we also have this unpredictability as to how that might work. I hope uh, all the, the European Chambers members that are listening, that first, thank you to anyone who participated in the last two rounds. And I hope in this third round, we can have even higher number of survey respondents and some, some new companies to interview as well. Because, yeah, the report is only as good as the data and the interviews that we can gather from it. So whatever support uh, companies can provide is, is much appreciated. Certainly, I can only second that. And Chris, do you have any suggestions about what kind of topics we could include and explore in the next report? There's a, a lot on uh, on our minds right now. I think many companies at the moment are busy trying to figure out how some of these conflicts are going to turn out, how the geopolitical situation is, is going to turn out. It's a concern of many European companies. I mean, we, we see two powerhouses uh, really figuring out their role and, and where they, they need to go. But that also influences how companies will invest and, and where they will invest and so on and so on. But I, I think despite the geopolitical scene, probably the uh, two areas are really quite important for companies. And that is on the one side digitization and on the other side also sustainability. And we see that some countries in Europe, for instance, also have a pronounced legislation around sustainability and what that means and also how that influences other branches and other areas across the world. I mean, not, not only in China, but in, in other places as well. So how does that play out for our, our members? Um, how does that play out for my, my colleagues, basically, in other industries from European origin? That is probably something I think that we need to be mindful of. and We also need to tackle with the, uh, the policy leaders and, and need to make sure that we set the right level playing field for everyone, that we have fair competition across the board. That's all for today. Thank you again, Chris and Jacob, for joining us. If you like our podcast, please subscribe to China Dispatches, recommend to your colleagues and friends, and share on social media. Also, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can find contact details in the show notes. This is Marianne Knight from China Dispatches. Thank you for listening. <laughs>